Well, welcome to Trinity Church. Um, we're a small bunch today, but we've got a very exciting genealogy uh, as we uh, start the book of Matthew. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and Advent has finally arrived. It's December, and today we're starting our Advent series. Uh, for some of you, this might be your uh, f- favorite time of year, favorite season, you're channeling your inner Tom Duttweiler, and you just can't wait to break out that Christmas music. Whether you do before Thanksgiving is an oft-debated topic, but you're looking forward to it all year. You can't wait to trade those uh, PSLs at Starbucks for the peppermint mochas, and uh, Decorate the tree, hang lights. Uh, You're excited for all the parties, festivities of this season. Maybe even you're crazy and for some reason you like uh, hitting up the stores, fighting the crowds, and uh, doing uh, Christmas shopping. Well, Advent is for you. But, But I recognize that's not where everyone is at. And maybe for you, uh, things are not going to be the same this year at the Christmas table as they were last year. Maybe you wish the year had uh, went a lot differently than it did. Uh, you have re- regrets and disappointment. Uh, maybe uh, you're just uh, stressed with all the busyness of the season and all the things that have to be done uh, before December 25th arrives. Well, Advent is for you too. And for everyone else who feels somewhere in the, in the middle of the spectrum between those two feelings concerning the season, guess what? Advent is for you too. We're going to be working our way through the Gospel of Matthew during this Advent season. We're not going to stop at Advent. We're just going to keep, uh, keep going through uh, the book of Matthew. And uh, during this Advent season, uh, we're, we're going to see the coming of Jesus, uh, the Messiah. And it doesn't fit your perfect nativity scene uh, you drive by. It much more closely fits the nativity scene at uh, our house, where... One sheep is missing a leg, the donkey's missing three legs, and uh, Selah is trying to take baby Jesus and throw it in the toilet. And then you got to rescue baby Jesus, of course. Uh, It's a a lot uh, closer to that, the the messiness of uh, the Christmas story as it's portrayed in the Gospels. Uh, Today we're going to learn about some uh, less than expected Uh, relatives in the line leading up to Jesus. Uh, Later on in our uh, study through this Advent season, we're going to meet a king who wants uh, Jesus dead and goes on a killing street to try to make that happen. Uh, This is Christmas, a Christmas for the real world. If you didn't get a listening guide, uh, you can lift your hand. Uh, Someone from the back will get you one. We also have Bibles uh, in the seat backs if you uh, would like uh, to use one of those. Uh, we're uh, starting 
Matthew, we've, we've committed to uh, preaching through the whole uh, counsel of the Word of God. We, we've studied New Testament epistles like Colossians. The last couple weeks went through uh, Philemon. We, we've been through Old Testament books like, I remember Ruth and uh, Daniel and the many times uh, we as pastors, uh, preachers had to say, not exactly sure what this means. But uh, we do know uh, God is sovereign, and uh, his will will come to pass. And, and now we're launching into one of the Gospels, Matthew, concerning the life uh, of Jesus. Uh, just uh, by way of introduction, uh, what do we need to know about uh, this book before we study it for the next year, year and a half, two years? We'll, we'll see how long it takes us. Well, first of all, uh, authorship. Uh, technically, it is uh, anonymous, uh, like uh, the other Gospels, but, but church traditions, starting from early 2nd century, uh, unanimously attribute this book to Matthew, the tax collector, uh, turned disciple of Jesus. I, I find no compelling reason uh, to seriously question his authorship. Uh, dating. So when was this written? It's generally agreed that Mark was the first gospel written, and then you've got uh, Matthew and Luke. Uh, scholars debate the exact order of that, but both of those written before the uh, fall of Jerusalem in uh, AD 70, before that destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, that, that probably puts Matthew, say, in the late 50s, AD, early 60s. And finally, the, John writes his gospel a couple, uh, a couple decades later, near the end of his life, not feeling the need to repeat uh, what is in uh, the other three uh, gospels, as uh, those traditions were w well known uh, throughout the church at the time. But it is able to uh, present uh, some uh, different material uh, in his uh, gospel. So w what is the audience that this uh, gospel, the gospel of Matthew, was written to? It's long been recognized, the primary Jewish nature of Matthew's audience. Uh, he focuses on Jesus as the Messiah, bringing the kingdom of heaven. But, uh, but at the same time, this is a radical New kingdom, which does not exclude Gentiles, but rather includes them on the same standing as Jews. One no longer has to proselytize to Judaism to be included in the people of God, but Gentiles on the same standing as Jews. Certainly some of Matthew's intended original audience and first the readers, hearers, uh, would have been followers of Jesus and needing encouragement to stand firm in the midst of uh, pressures to depart from the faith, maybe even go back to Judaism. And certainly at the same time, others in his audience were not Christians, but were intri intrigued by these uh, stories of Jesus, in in intrigued by this Christianity that they had heard about. And in reading this book, 
Matthew hopes that they would see Jesus for who he truly is and turn in faith uh, to him. As we launch into the Gospel of Matthew, uh, people have a lot of misconceptions uh, concerning Gospel of Matthew and just the Gospels in general. So let me take just a few minutes uh, before we uh, cover uh, the genealogy here in, in Matthew 1 to uh, clear up uh, six myths concerning the Gospels. So number one, we need to carefully study the Q hypothesis. This is a myth, all right? I, I don't have the time or desire to completely unpack uh, this theory about a hypothetical document that Matthew and Luke used in addition to the Gospel of Matthew uh, in writing the Gospel. Why, why do I even mention this? Well, if you, you read some commentaries, you might, he, you might, might hear about this. It, don't, don't let it rock your faith. If you, you tell a long-lost uncle at uh, Christmas, hey, we're moving through the Gospel of Matthew. And, you know, he's read a few articles and wants to throw you a curveball and is really into this intriguing Q hypothesis. All right, you, you know it exists. Uh, the big part about this is it's hypothetical. We believe in a full inspiration. The gospel authors have certainly used uh, uh, oral and uh, written sources in addition to in the case of uh, Matthew, case of John also, uh, firsthand uh, memory uh, of experiences. And, and through the process of composition, the Holy Spirit uh, worked ensuring the Gospels, including the Gospel of Matthew, contained full truth without mixture with error. It, it's an overstatement to say anyone who is intrigued by, holds some value to the Q hypothesis, is an apostate. Uh, no, no, some Jesus-loving scholars uh, have studied this uh, diligently, uh, find some value in it, but uh, I, I'd argue it's of a little help uh, as we work our way through uh, the gospel according to Matthew. Second uh, myth concerning the Gospels, the red letters are more important than the black ones. I, I hope I don't uh, burst your bubble with that one. If that were true, you you'd be looking at uh, your Bible today. Uh, not too exciting of a sermon. It looks like it's all black letters, but uh, can't wait for a couple more months and we get to a whole bunch of red letters, going to be uh, quite uh, exciting, right? Well, th this whole book is about Jesus, and, and the black letters are just as important as the red letters. Without the black letters, we wouldn't understand uh, the, the red. And remember, well, what's if you have a red letter Bible, what's in read are often summaries of what Jesus uh, said. It actually probably spoke in Aramaic. Uh, don't let that rock your world also. Uh, we still uh, have his 
exact and true voice as Matthew uh, summarizes and presents it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, to us. Not, no, not that I'm hating on red letter Bibles. You can see my, my Bible has uh, red letters in it, and, and it can be helpful, especially if you're launching into a passage. It's, it's kind of good to you know, know who's speaking. If you uh, start reading in Matthew 4, it, it looks like a quotation of scriptures. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. It, well, it's in black, and hopefully that'll clue you in to like, look to see who's speaking it, not attribute that to Jesus, because it's actually the devil speaking. We're not huge fans of the devil here. We, we pray against his work. So can be helpful to know uh, who is, is speaking, especially as you um, just launch into a uh, given passage. Now, I would recommend they put the words of John the Baptist in blue, the words of Peter in green, maybe the words of the devil in purple or something. Uh, Crossway didn't take my suggestion, so um, you're stuck with just black and red letters if you have one of those Bibles. Myth number three. What do we have here? The Gospels follow a strict chronology. Okay, so the, the four Gospels move from Jesus' birth, uh, arrival, to his death, resurrection. It doesn't go the other way around. Uh, there's no Gospel that starts with his death and um, ends on his birth. But at the same time, they don't follow a strict chronology. Uh, that's not what was expected of them in the first century. And uh, um, there were more important uh, factors uh, considered in the flow of the book. For example, Matthew is organized around uh, five large discourses, large sermons of Jesus. And, and remember that Jesus' ministry was uh, itinerant. He, he taught similar things at uh, numerous uh, different times to different people as he uh, traveled. He healed people a plethora uh, of uh, different times. Number four, myth concerning the Gospels. The best way to read the synoptics, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is to try to reconstruct them into one chronological gospel. Now, at the same time, I, I do ag agree that the differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke um, and supposed discrepancies uh, can be reconciled. However, at the same time, that, that's not going to be our primary focus as we work our way uh, through the gospel uh, of Matthew. If that were our, our primary focus, so we would miss the point that Matthew is making if we take an episode recorded by Matthew and add some details from Mark and oh Luke has a couple more details and and try to uh, completely reconcile get like a full orbed picture work out entire chronology we we want to uh, see what Matthew is focusing on what, what 
uh, Matthew is presenting. When, when I read the, uh, the other Gospels as I, I'm studying the Gospel of Matthew, as they present uh, the same events, uh, I, I'm really not looking to see like what details I can add to Matthew's account. Instead, I'm looking to see uh, what Matthew focuses on. And maybe Matthew adds a detail that, uh, that Mark, Luke, uh, don't have. And uh, I'm asking myself, why? Well, what's his focus here? Maybe, maybe he doesn't include um, some information. Why isn't he including that? Well, what is that revealing about uh, his uh, focus in uh, the passage to help me zero in on uh, the point he is making. Number five, myth concerning the Gospels. The Gospels present just the facts, leaving interpretation to the reader. First of all, that, that's not possible, and it's certainly not what's going on. The Gospel writers had to select what episodes and material to include. Uh, they gave summaries of what uh, Jesus said. Uh, John reminds us that there wouldn't be enough books to record everything concerning the life of uh, Jesus. Uh, also, the gospel writers help us interpret uh, the facts. That's why the black words are awfully important, uh, as are the red letters. Uh, Matthew, for example, is making an argument concerning who Jesus is and what he has come to do. He loves his Old Testament, and the reader with a good familiarity will recognize numerous connections that Matthew is trying to make. Matthew wants his readers to know the facts, but he wants to go far beyond that, and he wants to um, cause in faith his readers to become or persevere as followers of Jesus as they read his account. And, and last myth concerning the Gospels is we have little to learn because we know all the stories. Maybe you haven't heard a sermon series all the way through the Gospel of Matthew, but you're, you're probably at least fairly familiar with these stories. They, uh, unlike our study through the book of Daniel, you're probably not going to say, whoa, I never knew that was even in the Bible. That is crazy. I have no clue. A lot of these you'll come to, yeah, I, I've read this many different times. I've, whether from the Gospel of Matthew, another gospel, uh, and the familiarity with the s stories can be uh, misleading. But remember that Matthew uh, could be making a couple of different points that the other uh, gospel writers, that, like say, for example, Luke is not making. So let me challenge you as we uh, embark on this study to uh, read this gospel carefully, uh, to believe that uh, God knows best and wants you to hear truths, maybe even truths you've known for years, uh, again, because... You desperately need them because I desperately need to hear them. And believe that God has truths for you that you've missed or glossed over.
before. And ultimately, we're doing this series with the fervent prayer that we will love, value, worship Jesus more at the end of this series than we do today. That we would marvel more at his work, that we would be changed more and more into his likeness through our study of the Gospel of Matthew. With that, let's get into the Gospel of Matthew and read the first 17 verses. We've got the genealogy of Jesus here, and we're going to be going through a lot of names. Uh, I've learned the key with this is to butcher the names, but read them fast and confidently. So, here we go. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Solomon, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah the father of Shethiel, and Shethiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abud, and Abud the father of Elikim, and Elikim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elud, and Elud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to their Christ, 14 generations. Pray with me. Father God, Help us not to ignore this passage from your word, thinking it's just a list of a bunch of names. Help us to see through the work of your spirit the glorious truth in this passage, a truth that would change us, that we would live differently the rest of the day, today, tomorrow, because we have heard from you. We pray that your spirit would do the work. In your good name we pray, amen. So, a lot of names, huh? Exciting. 
Maybe I should have picked someone else to, to read the names. But uh, this might seem like an odd way in our culture to start off a book, especially if you're trying to, like, say, draw your readers in. Like, oh, yeah, let's start out with a whole bunch of names of which, you know, about half of them we can uh, pronounce well. If you want to draw readers in, our culture probably would not have picked uh, such a beginning to a book, to a gospel. But, but this is not strange in the Hebrew world. One's lineage was very important. Uh, look at the numerous genealogies in the Old Testament. Uh, a first century Jew would think, oh, I, I could not even imagine a better way to start a gospel concerning Jesus. And, and this provides the grounds for what Jesus accomplishes in the rest of the book. So this genealogy goes from Abraham to David, David to deportation, and deportation to Jesus. Jesus arrives at the absolute right time. He is the fulfillment of the return from exile. Well, what does this genealogy reveal? That Jesus arrives as the Messiah come to save his people. See, in verse 1, along with verses 16, verse 17, the word Christ. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew Aramaic uh, Messiah. But both Christ and Messiah mean anointed one. Uh, Christ in Greek was originally an adjective. You'd put, like say, anointed plus a noun. And uh, in the Septuagint, it's often used as a substantive where you just have the adjective implying the noun, anointed one. And, and during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it, it developed a technical meaning, referring uh, often to the long-awaited uh, anointed one to come, the Messiah that was coming. Uh, by connecting Jesus to the Old Testament heroes and the forward moving work of God in salvation. Matthew shows that the time of fulfillment of the Old Testament expectation has come. The Messiah is here. This is what Matthew's audience needed to know. This is what they needed to hear. This is for what they have been longing, looking for centuries. The introduction of this book squarely places Jesus as the fulfillment of this messianic hope among first century Jews. And, and as Matthew will unpack throughout this book, uh, numerous surprises concerning uh, the arrival of the Messiah uh, as the fulfillment. Oh, we'll see. It's, but at the end, it's better. But, but that'll take a, a while uh, to sink in. So, so in this genealogy, what do we learn about Jesus as the Messiah come to save uh, his people? In our time remaining, uh, let's focus our attention on th uh, three truths uh, from these verses. First truth, Jesus comes from a line filled with unexpected characters. This line could have been cut off 
at numerous turns in the road, but, but God caused it to continue. It even faced deportation, exile, but God caused it to endure. And who comes at the end of this line? Jesus, at the absolute right time. The, the original audience would revere, but at the same time, remember that the, the rock stars, quote-unquote, in this line, were, were less than expected ancestors of the Messiah. Abraham, if you remember, he started off as an idol worshiper when God called him. David was a shocking choice in comparison with his brothers. It made Samuel's jaw drop, not to mention many of the other characters in this line. But, but I specifically, we're not going to move our way through every single character here. I know you're very grateful for that. Um, I specifically want to focus on the unusual inclusion of five women in this genealogy. Uh, this broke from the standard practice of the first century. And uh, as, we're, as you're reading, you might have realized this isn't really necessary does by Tamar in verse 3, does that need to appear? Absolutely not. Does by Rahab and by Ruth need to appear in verse 5? Certainly no. How about by the wife of Uriah in verse 6? He could have just said, and David was the father of Solomon. And Solomon, the father, uh, no, it absolutely does not need to appear you know, by the wife of Uriah. And, and finally, we come to Mary in verse 16. Uh, and she's by far the closest to a necessary character in this genealogy. Well, let me just give you the, the Cliff Notes uh, version uh, concerning what are really a bunch of scandalous unions to establish this messianic line. So Tamar, might remember from the Old Testament, was a Canaanite woman who marries the firstborn of Judah. Er, uh, he's a pretty wicked guy, and the Lord puts him to death. Then Onan is given to her, and he won't per perform the duties of Levirate marriage so God wipes him out. And Judah at that time decides he wants nothing to do with giving his third son to Tamar. So what does Tamar do? Uh, she takes the situation into her own hands. She pretends to be a prostitute and gets Judah to sleep with her. And that's exactly who we're celebrating in this messianic line. And guess what? Next woman on the list, Rahab. She's also a Gentile prostitute. Uh, she helps and hides uh, the spies, and uh, God spares her in the conquest. Next one, Ruth. Remember studying her a, a couple months ago? Uh, she was a Moabite who, who the sons of Naomi had no business marrying, but 
in the story, we read that she demonstrates more faith than the Israelites in the narrative. How about the wife of Uriah? Wow, Bathsheba doesn't even get named. She's just called the wife of Uriah. That certainly highlights David's adultery and murder and the unlikelihood of such a union, the scandalous nature of it. And that's exactly how the messianic line continues. And what about Mary, whose husband was Joseph, and through her the Messiah was born? Look how carefully Matthew dances around. It's careful not to indicate that Joseph fathered Jesus. He's dancing around what he'll make explicit in our study next week, that the child was conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. So, so what are the first four women doing? Well, why are they included? Uh, well, ultimately, they're setting up this scandalous birth uh, of Jesus to a teenage girl, virgin, named Mary. She would certainly endure much mocking and reproach, as it's not too easy if you haven't figured it out, to get people to believe that you're a pregnant virgin. Now, not too many people buy in that one. Uh, pretty hard argument to make. And they would certainly have considered her pregnancy to be an utter disgrace and Jesus to be illegitimate. The, gospel, the Gospels contain hints of the charges of illegitimacy against Jesus for his birth, and this was certainly prevalent in the early days of the church. But look here that Matthew is arguing that such reproach is actually par for the course in this lineage and puts Mary on very firm footing within this messianic line filled with scandalous unions and completely unexpected characters. God chose to bless the union with Tamar, though it was incest. God chose to bless the union with Rahab, though she was a Gentile prostitute. God chose to bless the union with Ruth, though she was a Moabite. God chose to bless the union with the wife of Uriah, though it was adultery. God can do as he likes and use even sin to bring about his purposes. And we see faith similar to that of Mary's demonstrated in ways we often fail to remember that Tamar was said to be more godly than Judah. Rahab demonstrated faith in hiding the spies. Ruth had more faith than the Israelites in the, the story. And why include Gentiles in this line. The Messianic line is Jewish, isn't it? Well, yes, but Matthew is also setting up for a change in the people of God, indicating even at this early juncture in the story that this new people of God is centered not around ethnicity 
shared social experience, but around faith in Jesus. Jesus forms this new people of God, and one's belief in Jesus matters far more than one's gender, ethnicity, religiosity, social standing, despite the cultural norms of the day. So, so what should this do for us? How should we respond to this truth concerning the coming of Jesus from a line filled with unexpected characters, even Gentiles, women, prostitutes, named in this lineage? Well, first of all, we should marvel at the wisdom of God. This wouldn't be how any of us here would have designed it, but it's so much richer the way God caused it to come to pass. And then let's see that Jesus has reformed the people of God. Well, let's celebrate that we, if you're a Gentile here, are allowed to enter in on the same footing as Jews based on our relationship with Jesus. We, we tend to be deluded into thinking that somehow we deserve this kingdom of God, God has brought us into. We certainly do not and need to be reminded of the miracle of God adding us to his family. This is a reason for, for joy in this Christmas season if you are a Christian here today. And lastly, let's not discount and rule out those with similar backgrounds and stories to the women in the line of Jesus. We tend to gravitate toward people who we believe are more likely to become Christians and would seem to fit well in the church. Like, ah, I could see that guy or that girl coming to faith. It just seems like a person would, would fit well within Christian culture and within the church and tend to almost rule out people that seem, oh, that, that, that person's way too far from the gospel, far from Jesus. But that's not how it works. That's not how Jesus primarily builds his church. He calls the least likely people, proving that it's the power of God at work not our own skill. Maybe you're even here today and you relate well to these women. You're ashamed of parts of your story. You don't feel like you deserve God's salvation. You, you have questions. How could God love me? How could God forgive me? How could I ever be included in the people of God? Well, let me tell you a secret. You are right where you need to be. You are exactly the kind of person God invites into his family. Actually, you are right where every person in God's family needs to be. The one who thinks he or she deserves to be a son or daughter because of what that person has done, is doing, is deceived and has no claim to God's family based on that person's merits. So the inclusion of unexpected 
characters helps indicate a focus of this genealogy. But we can find a couple other emphases in what is said in the, the prime position and repeated in these genealogies, in this genealogy. One of those is that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Look back at the first verse. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 2, Abraham was the father, and so on. That Jesus is the son of Abraham. And this genealogy starts with Abraham, the patriarch. Uh, obviously, Matthew is ensuring that his reader sees the connection between uh, Jesus and Abraham. Luke, in contrast, he, he starts with Jesus and works his way back to Adam, the son of God. Uh, Matthew has a significantly different agenda for his uh, genealogy here. He's not interested in connecting Jesus with Adam and the beginning of the human race. Instead, he chooses as a starting point of Abraham for a very good reason, as we'll see. Why is it noteworthy that Jesus is a son of Abraham? Well, son of Abraham, the term, is used to refer to those of Jewish blood. To be a son of Abraham was to be a true Israelite. All his descendants looked to Abraham, whom God called out to make a special covenant with him and his children. Quick recap on Abraham. He, he was a pagan, worshiping false gods, when, when the one true God called him out of his homeland to worship God alone. God promised to make him a great nation with his descendants as the stars of the heaven. And when did God give that promise? Well, Abraham didn't even have a son. And he was really old. And his wife, uh, Sarah, was awfully old too. And God promised Abraham all the land he could see. And God promised that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So, so why is it important that Jesus is a true Israelite, a son of Abraham? Why is Matthew emphasizing that? Well, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Verse 16, Jesus who is called the Christ, called the Messiah. Matthew is arguing that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, and he can only be so if he is a true Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, come to bless all the nations of the earth. Up to this point in salvation history, the promises given to Abraham had been partially fulfilled. Israel did grow into a large nation from such a small, unlikely starting point. Israel did possess significant land in its heyday under David and Solomon. But to call these promises given to Abraham fulfilled would seriously downplay the scope of these promises. And look at the state of Israel at the time of the arrival of Jesus. Not a pretty picture. Certainly far from a living fulfillment 
of these promises. But Matthew identifies Jesus as the son of Abraham with the expectation in this genealogy that he's going to radically alter the narrative. Jesus is the true Israel. That this changes how we read the Old Testament. We, we don't read it primarily glorying in the faith of patriarchs like Abraham. Abraham's faith is worth emulating, but to stop right there makes a great sermon within Judaism. To read it as a Christian, we see Abraham in the whole story of the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the son of Abraham. And we can't help but see the faithfulness of God in the line from Abraham to Jesus. God's promises are sure, regardless of how things look out the window, God will do what he promised and bring his promises to fulfillment. That is a God I can rest in. That is a God you can rest in this week. Under the wings of that God, we can sleep well, even in the midst of trials, many uncertainties. Are you trusting in our ever-faithful God? May this genealogy uh, cause your faith to increase this week. And, and are you proclaiming the faithfulness of God to those around you? Maybe for, for you, that primarily looks like sharing God's faithfulness w- with your kids. Well then, share it diligently with them. You see, you can certainly go to church every time the doors are open, but not testify. Your life testify to the faithfulness of God to you. And maybe that means helping your coworkers see that the things, the good things going on in your life are not a result of your own wisdom, skill, life hacking, but a result of the faithfulness of God to you. Maybe that means of proclaiming God's faithfulness to your neighbors when they see you're going through difficult circumstances. The faithfulness of God, Jesus, the son of Abraham. Well, let's keep digging though, because there's another point of emphasis that screams at us even more than the inclusion of these unexpected characters and the focus on Jesus as the son of Abraham. And that is this, that Jesus is the son of David. Look back, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. First words after it, the son of David. And then placed in a prime position right at the end of the first of three sets in the genealogy is, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And finally, in the recap, we see that there's 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to deportation, and 14 from deportation to the Messiah. David is placed in the prime position here. So, so why does 14 generations matter? Well, the counting of Abraham to David 
as uh, 14 generations, uh, appears in other sources and seems to be uh, a traditional genealogy. Uh, However, there's definitely some creativity in in the way Matthew presents it. It allows him to skip certain generations. Uh, For example, he, he skips three generations between Joram and Uzziah in verse 8. Luke uh, traces a different route from Zerubbabel to Jesus, but has about double the names. Uh, Matthew has about 13, uh, 13 generations spanning 600 years. He's obviously, he's skipping uh, numerous, uh, numerous characters in the line. But it, look how he carefully crafts this to be three sets of 14 generations. So, so you, you might say, why is he doing it? And he repeats it. It's not just that we add it up and like, oh, hmm, this fit into nice little paragraphs. He repeats it in verse 17. And so, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon uh, to the Christ, 14 generations. He, he designs it very carefully that there's 14 generations. Why, why is he bringing out, unpacking that point for us, repeating that over and over? Why 14? Well, you might have wondered this for a long time. And... Uh, this is the Jewish practice of gematria, giving a numeric value to each consonant. Uh, and the name David, the D is four, V six, and the last D is four also, has the value of 14. So you might think, oh boy, this guy, so he's finally flipped and he's given us this, some crazy numerical uh, gymnastics here. But uh, truly, this was a widespread uh, practice uh, in the uh, first century in Jewish and Christian uh, circles. That's why Matthew is repeating the 14 generations. That's why Matthew places David as the 14th name on the list. Son of David is the first descriptor of Jesus Christ. Repeats at the end, the 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Basically, it's meant to scream out, David, David, David. David is the key to the pattern of this genealogy. Matthew does not want his reader to miss that Jesus is the son of David. So, so what does this mean? Being from the line of David is the appropriate ancestry for a king. Well, look, David is specifically called David the king. God promised David his kingdom would be established forever. And here is Jesus coming onto the scene to fulfill that promise. Even more, son of David was a messianic title in the first century. A Jewish expectation of a Messiah 
messianic king from the line of David. At this point in the book, we can at the very least see Jesus's kingly descent from David with a major hint that it's far more than that, that this messianic expectation will be fulfilled in Jesus. The throne of David rightfully belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah come to rule as the son of David. So question for you is, do you see Jesus as this long expected king being a descendant of David? This is a great reminder for us in Advent. As much of this season can be trivialized. Jesus did arrive as a baby, but Matthew makes sure his audience understands that Jesus has come to rule. You might object, well, last time I read Matthew, or any gospel for that matter, I don't remember Jesus doing all that much ruling or the activity of a king. And ah, you are correct. And that's why so many people missed his arrival. They had a preconceived idea of what this Messiah, this son of David, would do. They were waiting for him to beat up the Romans, to get them out from uh, the rule of Rome. And they missed this arrival of Jesus as the son of David come to rule as king. The kingdom has arrived with Jesus as the Davidic king, as we see in these uh, first verses of this book. And, And one day when Jesus returns, everyone will finally recognize his unmistakable reign. The question for us now is, do we recognize Jesus' reign as the king on David's throne? Think about that this week. To help us in that endeavor, let me just unpack that a little bit more. If, If I recognize Jesus as king, how would that reshape my priorities? Here's a few ideas. If I recognize Jesus as king, I would I will pa- more passionately worship him and submit to what he says even if I don't like it. If I recognize Jesus as king, I'll care more about Jesus's kingdom and seeing his kingdom go forth than my own. I will pray fervently and then act to take advantage of opportunities to tell others about Jesus, the King. If I recognize Jesus as King, I'll realize that all I have ultimately belongs to Jesus, ultimately belongs to him, and give generously to see the gospel go forth in this world. If I recognize Jesus as King, I'll hope in him, even when I'm not exactly sure what's going on in the world around me. So you may have read over this passage uh, numerous times, thinking it was just 
a family tree from Ancestry DNA, first century edition, with a few Old Testament heroes mixed in. But, but we've, we've seen it's far more than that. It argues that Jesus is the Messiah come to save his people. He comes from a line of very unexpected characters. But we'll find that this makes his birth, that we'll study next week, quite fitting. He's true Israel come to rule as David's heir. And that's the Jesus we worship. That's the Jesus we celebrate during this Advent season. May God give you, may he give me a greater love for Jesus. May we value him above all else, trusting in his faithfulness and looking for his kingdom and living for his kingdom. That's Christmas for the real world, not just lights, trees, ornaments, nativity scenes, but a Christmas that changes all other 364 days of the year. Uh, Pray with me. Father God, thank you for sending us Jesus, uh, the Messiah. We, We confess that we are a lot like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, Mary, in that we are completely unworthy to be called into your family. We thank you for inviting us in. We thank you that we get to worship Jesus, true Israel, the King on David's throne, ruling forever and ever. May we, from studying this passage, may we worship him more fervently this week. May we value, cherish him above all other uh, competing things we're tempted to worship. We pray this in his glorious name. Amen.